Now we are, though. Okay. Well, I mean, now that we're uncomfortable. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, the the uncomfortable place is the good place to no, be. No, it's not. It's not. No growth in the comfort zone. Uh, you want it to feel natural, Justin. <laughs> I don't know if you know about presenting, but... Not at all. <sighs> Never well, done it. Well, it just farted, so... In your in your chair. God. If you want to trade chairs, I can trade you mine. I'm good. I'm I, good. I got the same one. It just, you know... That's probably got more farts in it. I'm good. <laughs> uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever this po- fine establishment of a podcast may find you. It is I, as always, Gavin. And I, Justin. And I just farted in Justin's seat. This is, I guess you could call a regular occurrence <laughs> when he's occupying that chair. I don't, that's not true. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to fucking out me. You outed yourself. Fucking, you know, gaslighting. Bitch. Anyways, uh, <laughs> welcome back to the show. I I, I don't know. What, do we want? Is there anything we want to talk about today? We we didn't really plan like a big, you know, big brain, you know, uh, stream of consciousness. Really, we haven't really planned much. I mean, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we could do a Franken car, and we could go like back and forth on like if we were to build a car, what would it be? And it could be you know any kind of platform, any kind of engine. The laws of reality don't really apply, you know. So if you wanted to do like an MR2 with a Ferrari V12 or something like, oh, Jesus, like you know, go f- ha- have at it. Okay. Um, I don't know. We, you want to do that, or do you want to save? Th- you want to put thought into that for another time, or do you want to just do it on the fly now? Let's do it on the fly. Let's see what happens. Like okay. th- this could get interesting. Okay, so uh, Justin, you let's have you start off with choosing. The engine platform, like the or the layout, so like the placement and like that stuff. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So many options. Because this is a thing that, like, if one of us like pisses the other one off, oh yeah, we can get petty. I know. And just completely fuck this car over. <laughs> let's see if we want to get real petty. Let's go full frontal engine, like Audi front in front of the wheel. So based, so a chassis. Based on like a D2 S8, or are we talking like B5 S4? So, because I know they utilize similar architecture and bolting pattern, we're gonna go with <laughs> platform only. You're not you're not including engine in this. Oh, just platform. That's what I'm saying. Like uh, like like okay. engine placement. Gotcha. Um, yeah, let's go with a uh, let's go with a D2 S8. D2 S8. Okay. Um. Because I'm here to play nice and I want to completely fuck us over right off the bat. I'm going to say a built, uh, let's say in the realm of 600 horsepower, um, 07K um, turbo five cylinder. Interesting choice. Okay. Yeah. Like not built like crazy. It's something that like you know will take it, but yeah. something that isn't slow. So you know what's funny is my initial idea, which is why I was going with engine. My initial idea was like, oh, it's literally the same architecture. Drop a W16 Veyron engine up the front. Oh, oops, sorry. Yeah, thousand thousand pounds of horsepower. Thousand horsepower, thousand, thousand pounds. Thousand pounds of... <laughs> How heavy is that engine? I actually don't know, but I know it's going to be up there because if it's just sheer size. Here, you, you go next and like choose like gearbox. Okay, gearbox. Let's see. Let's do this just for shits and giggles since I have a gear for it right here. Let's go with a Sadev six-speed sequential. From? From Sadev. So who do, who do they make gearboxes for? Uh, are they just a race gearbox company? They are. 
So um, this is, for instance, what's in the uh, uh, Ken Block's Hunicorn is gotcha. this six-speed Sadev, just look, like this. Look at you, Mr. Fancy Pants. So, uh, Well, you were not... Um, let's see. The 16-cylinder... Okay, weighs just uh, 490 kilograms due to its lightweight construction. It's going to be about 800 pounds, like times 2.2. So no, it'd be like over a thousand pounds. Oh wow! So I was actually quite on. I didn't. I honestly didn't know I was shooting from the hip. Yeah, but I mean, just sheer 16 cylinder. It's going to be fucking huge. Uh, with you know four turbos, ten intercoolers, yeah. and that that's probably just the engine. The the whole you know accessorized. Version of that is probably closer to fifteen hundred. Yeah, they probably that's probably just basically the long block with turbos and shit mounted. Right, mm-hmm. right. Okay, so with that gearbox, now let's have you choose uh, drive. Is it rear wheel drive, all wheel drive? I'm saying rear wheel drive. Okay, we're trying to party. Okay, <laughs> so we now have a party boat. We have a D two S eight with a five cylinder turbo, six hundred horsepower, and a six speed sequential manual. <laughs> this is quite the cake so far. Okay, so. Uh, uh, well, okay, so it's a it's a D two platform, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's four doors. Uh, okay, okay. Um, so we're doing a two door coupe. Do you want to do a two door coupe? So we're gonna basically make a a knockoff version of a Bentley Continental GT <laughs> yes. size thing. Yes. Fuck right, it, right. let's do it. You want to do that? Yep. Okay. What does the interior look like? Hmm. Let's see. So we could either go full stupid race car, or we could go full stupid luxury. This is the ball is in your court for this one. You know what? Just for shits and giggles, because we're gonna make this a weird amalgamation of shits. <laughs> let's let's literally have it be like a Bentley in like a full spot, full stop. No, not Bentley. Rolls Royce interior. Yeah. Like a Rolls Royce Silver Seraph, like classic luxury interior. Yeah, yeah. You know, the cushy seats, the uh the wood grain dash, the beautiful old dials. Um uh Hella sound deadening. Well, I was thinking of uh, what, what do they call the ceilings? The Starfield oh, ceilings. The Starlight uh Starlight, yeah. yeah. Starlight headliner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of that Cho- chosen so, well you, you, so you, you can also customize what mm-hmm. part of the solar system you know your starlight roof is mm-hmm. so let's say choose the section of the galaxy that's just over utah okay yeah it's so you know we now have this car that you outside is relatively raw and raucous like a little bit noisy and whatnot you get inside and the second you shut the door it's quiet and peaceful duke just like I remember um, on, for instance, Top Gear, the Bentley, um, the Bentley Arnage T review, Clarkson was like, these radios, these never miss a beat. We use them for communication to the track all the time, and you oh, can't wow. get reception in it because of how dense this car is. Oh, my God. That's what I want. Okay. That level of deadening and just isolation from the road from a like audible perspective. Yeah. But then have hopefully have the controls with all the shit going on still be Would you still have crazy. like like a race car looking wheel and like the shifter like yeah we'll, we'll we'll do like No the shifter would be like the shifter knob and like the rod out of the uh, Lamborghini Balboni. I was thinking either that or like the Pagani Huayra. Like that yeah. beautiful exposed linkage. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck it, let's do that instead. That's a way better idea. So like that, because that's also like luxurious at the same time as like bespoke and clicky and shit like that. Yeah, but it's also like kind of raw at the same time, whereas it's literally showing you the gears linkage or like out of a spiker, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, where it's a, it's an art piece that is functional. And let's do that. And then steering wheel, let's have, 
Let's have it be a race wheel of sorts, but trimmed in suede. Uh, I'm going to say Momo Prototipo. Okay. Yeah, trim, trimmed in just beautiful suede with contrast stitching, just like all the, uh, you know, the luxury sport tropes of the modern era. Right, right. Um, okay. So we need suspension and brakes. So let's have you do suspension. Uh, this, hmm. There's a couple of different ways this could go. Because you could choose the, you know, ferrofluid, the magnetorheological dampers that would be in something like a CTSV or the new C8 uh, Corvette or something like that. Or it depends on how we want to tow this line because that would be more like sports oriented, right? Mm-hmm. And then, like on the other side of it, the air ride that Audi uses in their RS6 is the fucking kitties titties. I'm just going to throw this out there. You, you'd be the end choice for sure. Mm-hmm. The McLaren suspension, where there's no oh. connecting links, so it can get super nice and soft, and it's dynamic. Just let that fizzle. I just don't know what it feels like. I, I've never experienced it. Um, I, and I've only ridden in one. I haven't driven one. Right, and as of this recording, I personally have driven... I haven't driven a CTSV, mm-hmm. but I've driven the RSX Avant, and the C8, or the C8, actually, <laughs> they're both C8s, uh, uh, Corvette. Um, I'm going to go abstract and go McLaren. I think that's a really good call. Like the actual McLaren DRC with no uh, no sway bars to connect it, you know? Like, Do they call it DRC? I don't know what they call it. They, they probably have some fancy name for it, uh-huh. uh, but just dynamic ride control oh, type of stuff. Gotcha, you know? yeah where it doesn't have any physical connections sure. to the other wheels so that each wheel can do its own independent thing. Kind of like, have, have you ever seen that? Uh, ooh, ooh, go ooh. Are we, the question is, and I think this, this could be um, a group effort here, what kind of driving are we doing with this? Is this going to be like race car shit or do we want to like lift it? Because we could <laughs> fuck around and find out and send it on dirt. That that would be a hilarious thing to send on dirt. Like you, you basically. So this is the kind of car. Let's say it's lifted fucking six inches or something relatively like rally car stuff. You know. Yeah. But then like this is the kind of car you put out a floor mat on the floor to the left of the driver's door. Take off your shoes first. Yes. So then you get into the interior, shut the door, and you are cocooned in this lavish comfort as you go around, but like bogging through mud. Uh, I'm actually gonna make a change and say not rally, but um, like Baja. Okay, so we're done 12 inches. Yeah. Okay. 12 inches off the factory, like five. So like 17 total when, when, <laughs> when you account for the original height. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? This is going to be quite... Man, I, I, I hate uh, to have the job of the engineer that has to figure out how to get that shit to the ground. Oh, my God. It's a rear-wheel drive uh, dog box, basically, mm-hmm. with a 600-horsepower Audi five-cylinder that's lifted 17 inches on like probably what 42s something like that yeah some crazy tire it's a large two-door coupe car yeah and like and with mclaren dynamic (laughs) suspension like i actually i could see that doing well uh in a place like baja see yeah that's i'm actually surprised that that stuff hasn't quite trickled down to that because most of those guys still use the good old like 22 inch travel fox shocks and understandably they're simple they're quick to replace you know there's no electronics and they take way more of a beating i'm sure it's an endurance thing i'm sure there could be a type of technology that could even be boiled down to a cheaper manufacturing level than what mclaren uses yeah yeah but uh I would probably 
bet that it could last at most 100 miles. Yeah, and most, well, and granted, most of those races aren't 100 miles, but most of those guys are going to be like, okay, we want the least chance of problems. Well, those races are like 500 or 1,000 miles, and that's what I'm saying. Oh, you're talking about the full, like, you know, actual Baja 1000. Yeah, I'm talking about, like, that kind of driving. Gotcha. Yeah. That would be quite the interesting setup. So now you have a suspension that can, theoretically, lower down and get, like, not low it won't there's no way it can get low low no but it'll but, compress but it, you can compress it down yeah release a bit of the uh mag magnet magnetism or whatever mclaren uses out of the shocks to like drop them down make them soft make them softer or harder or whatever right ferrofluid so i believe this was called so i guess i'll go ahead and handle brakes then hmm i mean brakes are simple you just want good brakes right right you know i mean the thing that st- you know um is at the forefront of my mind, it would be like the 10-piston Lamborghini Urus brakes. Hmm. Because those are 10, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Either 8 or 10. They're nice and big. I think they're 10s. 10-piston uh, carbon ceramics. Fuck it. Yeah, let's go with Urus brakes. So it, it, we get a little bit of uh, actually sticking with the brand, kind of, because that's actually Volkswagen Audi. A, a lot of, of this day. is Volkswagen Audi. So... Let's just throw some Eurus brakes on there for good measure because it'll need them. With a Balbo, actually no, it's not Balboni shifter. Sorry, it's still the Pagani Quiver shifter. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. <laughs> what else do we have? What else is there? That I mean, Bugatti Veyron seats. Ooh, I mean that would be that'd be a good choice in a way. Or Lug- Bugatti Chiron. Sh- yeah. Seats. Luxury, but also technically sort of sporty. Yeah, hold you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, that's effectively most of the drivetrain. Like, you know, if, if we really wanted to get nerdy, which I don't think either you or I is capable of doing, going to mention specific differentials or bullshit Sure, like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Well, what do we want it... So it's a coupe. What do we want it to look like? Well, um, I actually love the idea of a coupe that looks more elegant, like the Bentley Continental, or like things of that nature, where it's a long, big... Or like the, the RS5. Or the RS5, yeah. Um, but I'm thinking bigger than RS5, like right. a rather large Wraith. boat. Or mm-hmm. the, yeah, because the Wraith is a two-door, right? The Wraith is a two-door, yeah. Okay. So a rather large boat of a car that mm-hmm. now has the express capability of doing all the off-roading that the Baja guys do with zero comfort. I'm just trying to think of how this, what's the, this thing is going to weigh. If it has that kind of footprint with that amount of real estate. And with the luxury interior, exactly. I And, like, I guess we could have gone with the heavier engine. True. You know, the five-cylinder, I mean, an iron block five-cylinder is not nothing. Actually, for reference, because I've actually mentioned this to you before, the iron block five-cylinder that's in my URS-6 yeah. weighs... 40 pounds more than a 5.2 V10 from... Wow. Yeah, from like the, you know, any of the Lamborghinis or... Those the, are aluminum though, right? They are aluminum. Okay. So that's, that's your big difference right there is just simply material. However, right. either way, it's still about a 500-ish pound, 600-ish pound engine. Okay. You know, which is pretty big considering it's only a 2.2 liter. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty hefty. If you compare that against the W16 Veyron engine, which is 16 Pro- cylinders, and probably, 8 liters. Yeah, and in just physical, you know, left to right dimension size, so much larger. Yeah, the weight is spread more, whereas it's a lot denser. Yeah, the, the five cylinder is a dense lad. It's also why it's very popular to build big power, is because it's just iron. Uh, yes, yeah, stronger metal can hold more pressure that comes from more power in an engine. Mm hmm. Whoop de doo. Wow, yep. we figured out physics. Wow. Um, anyways, so that being said, um, I would venture as far as weight is concerned. 
I would venture to probably weigh about 6,000 pounds. Probably. You know, probably. I would say 6,500. Yeah. A nice and <laughs> nice and hefty. Nice and thick. A L- little bit of a thick lad. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Now, that's, that would be quite the car. In a way, like, that's the kind of car I would love to just drive around as a daily, for not all the time, but, like, once in a while. Sure. To get people's reactions. Yeah. Because it's just just far enough left field to be outlandish and have everybody do a double take like what the fuck yeah. was that <laughs> dad what i you know what i saw today what's that son i saw a lifted two-door like i don't know it looked like a kind of like a bentley like this massive luxury car but it had m- twice as much travel as your chevy what that's not possible that's no. impossible no it no dad i promise i promise i saw it on the here, freeway here look at my phone <laughs> what the fuck is that <laughs> Just like the fucking Puma. God, we are returning back to last week's episode. <laughs> no, no, no. It would look. Oh, no. Let's not. Let's not deface our creation like that. It, it would look far better than that. It would look better, but a lot of actually. Now that I think about it, the same characteristics. <laughs> Big motor up front, rear drive in the back. Yep. An automated gearbox of some kind. A, a car. Forty-two inch tires. A car-ish formula. There we go. We just made the Puma better. That's what you should have done. Exactly. Goddamn. <laughs> That's funny. The Frank. <laughs> wow. That that was an idea stolen um, from Throttle House. They they did that uh, with sports cars. I mean, I don't blame them because, like, even me and you have theorized many times about like more realistic ones. Yeah, where... like what what an ideal version of a car would be. Um, we are currently filming. Not filming. We're not currently filming. We filmed it already. We're done. We're. Mm. We're done filming. <laughs> we're done. We're done. You've watched your mouth. Eh? I know. <laughs> um, we have filmed. You've probably heard about this if you're listening to this still. Um, a generations on the Acura NSX, and I started to theorize uh, what my dream, like, version of the NSX would be, like a Franken version of that. Um, and I'm still going back and forth on what whether I like the pop-up headlight or the fixed headlight more. And I think I'm erring more on the side of the facelifted pop-up car for the you know for the aesthetic. Um, take the 3.2 from the later gen uh, with the nice short shifter with the six-speed, um, a nice throaty exhaust, like good tires, good sway bar, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and I still think I like the old school manual rack one. That's just to me it's it's yeah. kind of a cool novelty. Yeah. And there's not much else that I would combine to be honest. It is funny though, um during the time while we've been sitting here editing prior to doing this podcast, I was looking up a little bit on seeing the differentiation of like how many people like pop-up versus facelift and actually it's pretty split. Really? Surprisingly, I would have. There's obviously a large crowd that loves pop-ups, but there is actually quite a few comments on like I would go on bring a trailer listings, or I would go. I went on like a bunch of different listings just to kind of get a gauge of what people seem to think. Yeah, it was pretty split down the middle of like, yeah, I kind of like the fixed headlight cars better. Interesting. Which is interesting, but I also kind of see it because we talked about this briefly in the studio with those cars. Like, the fixed headlight car doesn't look bad. It, no, it looks, looks great. It looks great. Like the little tweaks they did to the front end to accommodate that and go into the same places that the original pop-ups were, they did a fantastic job. Yeah, it's interesting because I, when I was younger, I actually preferred the aesthetic of the pop-up, or sorry, of the fixed headlight car. Yeah. And I really thought I was alone in that. 
yeah. I kind of felt like I was like the only one. Uh, and I'm glad that Justin is able to corroborate that taste along with, you know, what it sounds like a lot of other people. So yeah. that's re- that's really neat and interesting. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure it just depends on what, what generation you're from and what you're looking for. Pop-up is classic pretty much no matter what you look at just because that was the cool thing at the time in the 80s and 90s. Right. And... Um, what was the, that, that NSX had to have been the last car ever made with pop-ups. What was the last car to be made with pop-ups? It was the C5 Corvette. Oh, it was. Yes, because that trailed into the early 2000s. It did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it went all the way to 03, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so that that was officially the last car sold in North America, at least, with pop-ups. Yeah. So, not surprising. It's a Chevy, so they kind of got grandfathered in. Which, interesting thing, yeah. pop-ups aren't technically illegal, like... It's not illegal to have, for instance, for a manufacturer to make a pop-up headlight car. It's the other regulations, such as pedestrian safety and other things like that, that made it mostly impra- pedestrian. Yeah, that made it impractical. Right. I think there's a common misconception that it's not legal to make a pop-up headlight, but it's really just all the other stuff surrounding it mm-hmm. that made it difficult. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Um, as far as I'm concerned on that. Um, I like both equally and it would be difficult for me to choose because I like on the pop-up cars just below, oh boy, I, you know, I'm being put on the spot here, you know, with a gun to my head. Oh no, I got to choose right. Anyways, I don't care. I'll choose what I want. Um, what, what are you choosing? I'll probably air towards pop-up. Interesting. I, the only reason why, and it would be early pop-up too. I like on the earlier, and NSX is specifically is what I'm talking about. Here, right, right. Um, they have a little light that's below where the headlight pops up. And that design cue built into the bumper, I actually really like. I like kind of the stacked effect. You have headlight, this little indicator light, and then uh, I believe they have like like a fog light below that. But I I actually kind of like the stack effect Mm -hmm. that visually goes on there. Um, Well, it also looks like an anime character a little bit more. It does. (laughs) Like like an anime (laughs) character is blushing. It genuinely does. Yeah. And, you know... So there's those, then there's the mid cars, like Gavin said, where the, you know the cars that were after the NSXT with like the 3.2 in between. The, I like the uh, the aesthetic of the slow era, like the front end. I like that. I like having the Targa, but you know the yellow car that we had, which was yeah. an NA2, the you know, fixed headlight car that had a Targa roof on it. Yeah. So that's not you know bespoke to any particular generation. It's no. Just the hybrid didn't get it, but everything else did. Um. Except for the very early car too. Yeah. Um, I uh, think I think what I like about the later car is the fact that it. I mean, there it, there is a different lip on it. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more chiseled, and it doesn't because it doesn't have that light. I think it cleans up the design more. And I didn't notice it until you pointed it out on the roller footage of the black car, which was an earlier car. And I was like, Oh, that's that is why I like the later car. <laughs> so, yeah, I actually was just thinking, there's kind of three distinct uh, front-end eras. Um, two in pop-up and one after. So you had the early car, like the black car, where it does have that stack effect and, like, a lip that kind of cuts off right as the at the nose. Um, and it, it's relatively busy, but the shape is simple. Then you have the later pop-up cars, the early NA2 cars, where it actually gained, like, kind of a little angular jut-out Right. at the edge of the lip, right. but it kept the busyness of like the stacked headlight design and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then, when they redesigned it for the fixed headlights, they really simplified it, and in mm-hmm. a good way. They didn't they didn't ruin it by simplifying it. They made it 
just a lot more elegant in the way it curves around mm -hmm. when kind of eliminated the little jut out lip portions on left and right. I actually think all three of them, to be honest, are good choices. That's and that's another rare thing. Usually, like for instance, um, I know both of us on like S550 Mustangs love the original, hate the redesigns, or don't like the redesigns as much. It's still, I mean, it looked frumpy back in 2000 and whatever it was, 18. Yeah, I think, and it still looks a little frumpy. Today. It still looks frumpy. Um, Whereas this, I think all three distinct designs had their own personality that were all honestly all good. Yes, and unless if you you know. Um, and if you see an NSX drive by, you could probably point it out. Uh, but if you don't, like, if you're not, like, in the know about NSXs and you still see one drive by, you still think it's a gorgeous car. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily pick the differences out. You'd have to almost see them side by side like we Have do. you seen anybody ever say that an NSX is ugly when referring to a pre-hybrid uh, car? No. Um, I think... It's I, pretty unanimously attractive. I think the worst I've heard is that it's slightly boring. But that's the worst I've heard. It not, and it's not wasn't a full negative. It's just eh, it's not that exciting. Which I'll give him that. No, it's not. A, it's not the Lamborghini Diablo by any stretch. Yeah, on it's, purpose. It's, it's no 25th anniversary Countach. No, the the Japanese are notorious for either being like a little outlandish in things like modern Civic Type R, or being relatively understated. I it, mean, just depending on what they're going for. It, yeah, I mean, look at uh, GTRs and stuff of the 90s era. Mm -hmm. Um, they were sculpted, and this is, you know, granted it's a different brand, you know, if we're going at, like, at, say, Nissan. Yeah. Um, they were sculpted, but never, like, that busy. No, they they were definitely... A lot of the Japanese tuners, on the other hand... <laughs> they take that to the extreme. Yeah, they go balls to the wall. I mean, hell, look at... It's not a Japanese tuner, but look at the ERA Turbo. That was, like, almost specifically designed for the Japanese market, considering well, that's Euro what most Well, Euro tuners of them... were also kind of getting in on that, too. I mean, look mm -hmm. at the, just the company of Gambala. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? There, there's that, and then there's also a company that was famous for some Audi designs in the 80s and 90s called Tresser. Okay. Um, that did similar things to, like, what the ERA did to the Mini... Where right. it just like body kit and all this like crazy things and uh what's the other eight well abt oh yes abt mm -hmm. yeah they're notorious for that um but no I agree I haven't seen a single person at least in my experience anecdotally anecdotally yeah. that has said that the NSX is a bad looking car because right. it I I think the reality is as we've had discussions before on timelessness. When you don't make something to completely conform to like a current generation, which that really kind of didn't. I mean, that honest. car never didn't. I mean, the only trend the NSX really jumped on was the pop up headlights in the early cars. But aside from that, it didn't really, it wasn't like a trendy car. No. And what's funny is if you get in a, so if you get in, for instance, a 1990 Honda Accord, the interiors uh, of the NSX is so futuristic compared to a 1990s Accord. You get into a 2005 Accord and a 2005 NSX. So same car NSX wise, but I think three generations later on Accord, they actually look very similar. I, I was actually, and I th I was thinking about this as we filmed interiors and drove them and whatnot. The interior stuff that was designed on the NSX kind of became the design language Such about a what? decade down the road. Such, Such as like the climate control or the radio or like things like that. In the 90s, most Honda stuff didn't look like that. But if you go to the early 2000s, Interesting. A lot of the Honda stuff shared a little bit more curvy characteristics of some of those instrument pieces. Right. They use more like that, like display things, right? Like mm -hmm. they had, like you know, the, the like 
the screens and the things that you know display information yeah. were different, but the fundamentals that you're talking about of like how things kind of curved a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, definitely translated, and that is part of the you know product of an era kind of thing. And the NSX was definitely ahead of the time when it came out in the '90s about that. And even then, like that was if you think about it, it was designed through the mid to late '80s and then released in 1990. Uh, if you think about the, the car debuted at the Chicago Auto Show in '89. Mm-hmm. So, if you think about that era, that was coming to the close of pretty much every auto manufacturer doing square. Uh, right. So that car was actually really early on the curve trend, on being more, uh, you know, kind of uh, sculpted. That Ver- car in the Miata too, though, because mm-hmm. the the NA Miata came out at the same time. It, the first year dropped in '90. Yeah. And. I mean that that car's design language. Uh, if we're talking, if we're keeping on interiors, yeah, that didn't change fundamentally until two thousand and six with the NC, the NA, and the NB. Granted, there's a facelift within the NA. Um, the NB was kind of just like a reskinned version of what the NA was, both on outside and inside too. Yeah, um, there were some things that kind of. Uh, stayed as a mainstay of you know the essential miataness of it but if we're, if we're talking about you know cars being ahead of their time or whatever i mean yeah the na miata and the na1 nsx were really on the forefront yeah because even for instance the car that i owned that was a 90 uh 1989 but that generation continued to 91 was the mazda mx6 and at that generation, when the NA1 and the NA Miata were released, that was still a square body type car. Same with Audi. Audi didn't ditch the square body until 93 um, with the URS4 is when mm-hmm. they became more curvy. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, they were all bricks. Same with Volvo. Volvo didn't ditch the brick until also the early-ish 90 era. Um, and they, but they even carried it a little further. A lot of those cars or like actually 300ZX, 300ZX, went from very 80s blocky to curvy just a few years after. So well, like, you and I were talking about cars that changed their headlights. Yep. That's, that, that's the other one. That's the other car that went from pop-ups to fixed. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, I, I think that's part of the reason why that it's not considered ugly is because it really started moving forward out of the 80s trend. It, was, it didn't follow the lines. Yes, the first time... Okay, so if we're talking about my NSX... Uh, uh, experience and like my path. The very first one I drove was in 2017. It was on the same road that we shot uh, the hybrid car that you that you'll see in our film. Um, it was I, I I don't remember the year it was. Um, it was a black you know pop up headlight car. I don't re- recall if it was an NA1 or an NA2. I could easily find that out, I suppose. But um. Yeah, I, I drove that car in 2017, thought it was great with just some not very good tires on it because there's some Chinese, like, really cheap. What is it with black N- NSXs not having good tires? <laughs> Anyways, foreshadowing. Anyways, um, drove that car and then didn't really think that much about driving NSXs until the owner of the other black uh, NSX that was actually used in our film, that's coming. Uh, it drove his car, which is an NA1 with 36,000 miles on it, or 38,000, sorry. Last year was at 37. Um, and 
I drove that, and I was like, oh, fuck, I forgot how good these are. <laughs> and the first real experience of driving that car was back-to-back with a Porsche 3.2 Carrera from 1989. And the interesting thing is they only made the 3.2 Carrera until the very early 1989 because then during 1989, they started making 964, which is the next generation of the 911. Well, the NSX came out in 90. I mean, the very first ones of those were available or around in 1989. So there is some overlap here. And being the Porsche snob, being the Porsche fan that I am, and I was thoroughly enjoying that car. Um, 3.2 with the 5-speed. So it did have the G50 gearbox. Um, I got in the NSX, and I immediately understood. Like, oh, this is what the next chapter of sports cars was supposed to be. This makes sense. Yeah. I mean, even the documentation we found all around as we've been researching a lot of this, a lot of it does. I mean, hell, the, the name stands for New Sports Car Experimental. Like, it... They were trying to turn a page, not just for themselves, but 100%. honestly for the world, it seems like. They, they Like, reading some of these things, it seems like their vision was a little bit beyond even just Honda as a company. It's like, what is the next thing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next thing may not have been the mid-engine that they envisioned, uh, although the Japanese did try that a few times during the 80s and 90s. Um, however, I would say the next generation from design, from feel, from all these other things, that they nailed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just it's just interesting, like having our thirty year old viewpoint, you know, yeah. you know, like thirty years in the future, being able to look back and say, right, goddamn, they not only did they do it, but they just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, hats off to the development team at you know Acura and Honda for that. Uh, we keep coming back to NSXs. It's almost like it's what we're currently involved <laughs> in life right now. Jeez. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, what what the fuck's going on, Justin? What's new? Well, sadly, not a ton. As far as cars are concerned, like... I mean, it does have to know. be cars. I oh, mean, yeah. it could be life stuff, too. Uh, I mean, general work is just continuing as normal. For those of you that don't know, on this new iteration of the podcast, I own and operate a detailing company, and that's kind of been around for about three years now, and it's... It's been a slow growth, but that's been on purpose. I haven't wanted to force its growth. I've wanted to let it grow naturally, and there's pains that come along with that. But at the same time, it's grown me a client base that is a lot more regular and loyal Mm -hmm. than a lot of other people in my industry, where it's a lot of it is just a, you know, call in business and then drop off. They, you know, do services maybe once a year. But a lot of my clients are repeat, which which is great. Um, I mean, if they weren't repeat, you might be hurting. Yeah, uh, or I would have to kind of give up on, we'll call them morals, for lack of a better term, and, and like sacrifice and just go do... Start slinging, you know, yeah. coatings and stuff. Like Facebook ads or like, or like slinging, you know, more snake oil level, level coatings because yeah. uh, there, there is a lot of that in my industry. It's an interesting industry to be a part of just because there's a lot of like uh, the fundamentals of the industry haven't changed in 50 years. Sure. Fundamentally, you still take a wash mitt and wash a car. The things that have changed have been oh, we don't use cotton anymore. We use microfiber. Oh, we don't use like... Um, well, the paint technology that's also been around now. Yeah. We're, we're not... Uh, we're clear-coating cars, not single-stage painting. Right. Where, How um, long has clear-coat itself, like as a, you know, uh, a general commodity been around for? The 90s was the transition period. Okay. So um, there was about a phase of about a decade from nine, from 85 to 95 where it just depended on the paint. 
red cars were the very last to get clear coated, and I yeah. think it's just something to do chemically to do with paint type. Red is a weird color because it can present well, not just with cars, but just things like mm-hmm. in person. Um, and trying to photograph red and process red and edit red and then distribute red even is a motherfucker. Yeah, that's it's a really difficult thing, and I think there's some of that stuff with the paint too. Because oh yeah, for sure. instance the on the Sobs of my era, my 88 900 SPG, which is gray, was clear-coated. The 1990 red, Talladega red SPG was not. Um, mm. You know, th- like, depending on the paint you chose would be dependent on whether it was clear-coated or single-stage. Right. So, like, we've had to, you know, the industry's had to deal with that shift. We've had to deal with a bunch of other stuff. But, like, a lot of what has happened is just chemical changes, not necessarily fundamental changes. At the end of the day, in my industry, we still do roughly the same thing that was done 40 years ago. We just have better tools to do so right so it's always weird because we'll get a lot of snake oil stuff like ceramic coatings are an absolutely fantastic tool they do really well they help uh prevent build up on your car they help keep it cleaner but justin what if i never want to wash my car again then uh you don't own a car that's that's well the that's not what it. i wanted to hear i know and a lot of these, uh, a lot of the advertising will, will make it seem like that because. But Joe Schmo from down the street said, if I bought his uh, his ceramic coat, that I would never have to wash my car again, and I just rinse it, and then all the car, all for forever, all the dirt will just fly right off. Joe Schmo needs to get his eyes checked. Is that not is that not the case? Can I not do that? You know, oh, you can. Uh, <laughs> it's not advisable. Uh, uh, anyways, any of these, uh, a lot of these companies will throw big advertisements, especially in the social media era of like, oh yeah, like coating a car and then setting it on fire and oh my god it didn't do anything which is completely irrelevant no car is going to have to withstand fire damage necessarily and there's almost nothing you can do to prevent that wait i'm sorry has that actually been a sales tactic yes lighting cars on fire oh i thought you were doing a bit no that's not a bit i've seen uh two different companies don't do that advertisement and i don't even remember what companies they are because the coating industry at the moment is kind of stacked like a lot of industries are where there's you know, if you're wanting to just do generic shit, there's like four main suppliers. Sure. And then there's hundreds, if not thousands, of sub-white-labeled companies. Well, and that's the thing that I've heard about Griots is that they actually make their shit. They do. There are companies that make they their make shit. They make all of their liquids. Their other stuff they have, I think, imported. Yes, there are certain companies that do. So Meguiar's is one of them. Griots is another one. Um, uh, chemical guys I will mention because they do make some good stuff. However, they don't make their own stuff as far as I'm aware. You can actually go find other companies that have products that look very similar in bottle and labeling type mm-hmm. to chemical guys. Um, they are not as bad as I think a lot of my industry likes to hate on them. They're a little expensive and they have a, a big, you know. Ooh, chemical guys? Yeah. Okay. And they have a big habit of like releasing a new flavor with a soap that's claimed to be different, but in, at the end of the day, it's the same as the other 20 interior they cleaners they have. They just added a different scent. Exactly. But, I mean, that's for the person that's like me that's like not into detailing. Exactly. Like, I got to clean my car. Chemical Guys, I still have two chem- Chemical Guys products that I actually use because they're genuinely good basic products. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys are that. Um, Larry Casella on YouTube, M-O-N-Y-C. He, you know, he works with a company that makes his stuff. Um, and as far as any research I've done, and I have his whole product line, as far as I'm aware, pretty much everything is, you know, done by them and isn't shared. Right, but he would have had a hand in the developing process. Yeah, because he, he doesn't actually manufacture the shit himself, but nope. he, you know, had to sign off on what he was selling to people. Yeah, and, and how that worked is 
him and Matt Farah owned for a time a uh, a car wash. Yeah, this is like in the early 2000s. This is like 2004, I yep. think. And at, and just before that, while they were working for the car wash that they eventually ended up owning, he met a chemical, basically a traveling chemical salesman that he got in cahoots with, that he then got in cahoots with the manufacturer and worked with them over a period of several years to where he kind of got an inside foot and was able to go in and just test formulations and stuff. Sure. So like that's what he did to develop a lot of the stuff he has now. And now he basically just works with them and create stuff they bottle it and ship it under his name right so anyways um the coding industry right now is a budding industry and in budding industries you have so many people that love to jump on the bandwagon of course because that's look you know, crypto <laughs> <laughs> nfts bro uh, yeah brother anyways you, you always have that in every industry but it is very prevalent in mine and and in mine with the way that those advertisements are pitched to the average joe the problem is the average joe doesn't understand what's going on there because they're average yeah and sometimes even a little less than that because like the average car care as far as the physical car care is honestly really generally neglected by most people oh yeah like pretty severely a lot of people just don't realize that going to like a tunnel wash scratches the crap out of your paint and will probably reduce the life of your clear coat by a, a decade yeah but people don't care about clear coat especially if they don't have their car that long the prevailing appear, like opinion that I have found seems to be, well, the touchless doesn't do good enough. I don't want to do it. And the brush wash does fine. And a lot of people just don't notice scratches and swirls and things like that. And then don't realize that the reason their paint at 15 years is starting to peel is because that clear coat got worn out. And, you know, just from all that abuse. Well, it's interesting because the people that you would be trying to change their mind on you know if they should give a shit about their car um are not the people with 15 year old cars it's mm -hmm. the people with five-year-old cars yes and actually there's a couple of those i've for instance my mother actually she traditionally my family has only ever bought two brand new cars they bought a mazda 5 when it was brand new back in 2007 like right as they came out mm -hmm. and then my mom bought a brand new 2018 kia optima because she got a really good deal unlike the most base spec hybrid optima i've ever seen usually when they ship in hybrids they're like loaded with leather and stuff like that sure this was a cloth interior hybrid wow and it had been sitting on the lot for a year so she got it for like the most astounding deal are we talking low 20s uh yeah wow like 22 wow when it retailed for like 31 sure well and done mom it, it had been sitting on the lot for so long the battery was dead like the like not the, the not the hybrid battery. Oh, I was but like, like the car was dead, the and volt. they had to yeah they had to jump the, the battery. Yeah, 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 they had to jump the mini the uh, starting battery as it's called. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um. Anyways, but the only worry she had, and she still wanted to go through with it, was just because of the deal was that it was a black car. Sure. Black cars traditionally, as they oh, show but, dirt but, and they show swirls. Yeah. And the reason for that isn't because they scratch more, which is kind of the common misconception because that's what you see. Sure. It's just about light. For instance, you being a photographer, when you look at something that's white and blown out, you can't see anything. But if you look at something black, the difficulty is sometimes you see too much. It's either maybe a little too reflective or it's like a void and you're trying to balance highlights. Well, and, and I'm trying to pull detail out of the shadows without mm -hmm. making it look grainy as fuck. Mm-hmm. And the same thing kind of happens with cars. If you've ever looked at like the... Uh, like the uh, prism cubes, kind of like the, um, what's it called? Like the refracting cubes, like the album cover of Dark Side of the Moon. Right. It's a prism. It's a prism. And they, they reflect right light in different ways as it goes through it. 
Same thing happens with paint. When you right. have like a white car that's reflecting light, right. you're not seeing all these little divots because it's getting blown out because the paint is light colored. Sure. When it when you got light going into a black car, it's effectively acting like a black hole, and the only things you're seeing are the angles of those mm-hmm. very very fine scratches reflecting right. the light. Hundred percent. So, anyways, I walked her through like, okay, if you want to make sure this thing doesn't look like junk by year four, don't take it through a tunnel wash. Like, mm-hmm. you, I, like pretty much any touchless is fine. Go through a touchless; that's not a big deal. But if you really want it to look good, I would say like once a month. Hell, maybe even once every other month. You don't need to do it that often. Go to one of the drive-in washes, have your own wash mitt, like rinse it down with uh, you know the coin-operated washes, rinse it off, and then. Just soap it up with their soap, not the scrub thing, but sure. their soap out of yeah, the can. Don't, don't, don't use the brush. No, hell no, Dude. don't use the brush. Um, you don't know where that brush has been. I've used the brush once on um, on my wheels, actually. Yeah. On powder-coated wheels. Mm-hmm. And that... And very lightly. Yeah, and that's fine. Very delicately. That's fine. It's not going to do anything to those. Yeah. But um, soap it up with their stuff. Scrub it down by hand with a wash mitt and a bucket that you bring... And even better than that, if you can bring a bucket, your own soap and a wash mitt, just, again, use their uh, rinse to just fill up the bucket and use that to dunk and get crap off the rag and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It'll be great. And her car, four years later, still looks fantastic, even though that's something that she never cared about or dealt with before. Yeah, I need to get some buckets. I have a mitt. I've mm-hmm. never used it. I yeah. have a bunch of microfibers. Um, and I have some larger microfibers. Actually, they I forgot. I don't know where they went, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I you know I encounter people like that all the time because to be qu- quite frank, I can understand the opinion of, well, I mean the car I would rather have the car function than worry about it being perfectly clean. Like I, I can see where their mind is going, where they're more worried about maintaining the mechanical functionality the, of it, right? Because when think of, when people think about putting money into a car, they think about buying it, and they and then the next thing is maintenance and just getting it to work. Because everyone has this idea of them being stuck at the dealership, you know, waiting for a car to be worked on or waiting for a diagnosis on something, or they they're driving their car and they hear a noise or they feel something and it's like, oh shit, what's that? You know, there's all these other worries that are involved with, you know, car ownership that, you know, they, that's all the people have uh, an attention span for. It's just like the really crucial, don't fuck it up, you know, levels of like making sure there's oil in your car, making sure, you know, are your brakes squeaking? Uh, What's that bump? You know, does the car drive straight? And even beyond that, sometimes even that stuff's thrown by the wayside because a lot of that stuff gets thrown by yeah. the wayside because of the advertisements of company li- companies like Jiffy Lube where they try to pitch that like, oh, you just got to drive in, quickly change your oil, and you're good to go, when in reality, there's an actual maintenance schedule you should be following that's beyond just a simple oil change. Right. Um, but going back to the cleansiness, there's a, we'll just say, a larger person in my life that once tried to pitch me the theory of, why would I care about, I'm just going to withhold name, <laughs> who it is, but um, they tried to pitch the idea of like, okay, why would I care about the exterior or whatnot when it's going to get beat up anyways by other stuff and it doesn't make it worth anymore in the end in most cases as long as it's not destroyed, mm. which is valid by, you know, a car that's a, a regular car, not a special car, that's a different classification, but like a regular Civic, let's say, that's an 8 out of 10 condition versus one that's 6 out of 10, the, they're probably not going to be priced any different as far as no. you know retail on the secondhand market. That's true. So, so somebody will look at it and be like, why would I pay either you or somebody else or even put in my time to 
make the car go from 6 out of 10 to 8 out of 10 when I don't gain any value. And in fact, it's all a losing battle. I'm throwing away money or time into a black hole that's never returning. And my response has become over time that, well, while you're right, you won't gain money on the other end doing any of this, which you don't gain money on the other end almost always with cars anyways. True. You will gain the a, a much easier ability to sell it because it'll look like you gave a shit. Right. Um, and short of buying a house, I mean, yeah. the you know, people it, usually say that buying a car is your second largest financial commitment you will make in your life. Yep. Um, second to a house. Well, there might not be a lot of people our age buying houses. So in that case, buying a car is the biggest financial, uh, you know, commitment that you can make. And if you're committing that much of your money, every if you're you're writing a three hundred dollar check every month, if you're writing a six to eight hundred dollar check every month, what thousand, whatever, yeah, um, you want to do that and have your car look like shit? There's a lot of interesting, you know, uh, mental gymnastics that's go yeah. that goes on there. I mean, but, and clearly, you and I are, you know, not just hobbyists, but we're really passionate about this thing. Yep. You know, I mean, if. I tip my hat to some people that, you know, if they buy a watch that's crazy expensive and they wear the, you know, out of it and they, they beat the shit out of it. And, you know, if it's a tool watch that that's able to take that, that's fine. But then, like, you see something else that's, like, really well-maintained and, like, it's just immaculate. You're like, oh, my God, wow. See, and there's the... Actually, I am going to reference NSX's one more. There is that fine balance. And it just, oh just one more. Oh, my God, Justin. And it's just because that's a car we just had experience with. Sure. The highest mileage car of the three older cars that we drove was by far the cleanest. By far. Yeah, because we had a car with 1,000 miles on it by the time we gave it back. Mm-hmm. It, and clearly, that was a new car. But then if you you know roll the clock back 15 years, or a little bit more, I suppose, Yeah. that yellow car didn't look that bad. That, that old. That yellow car looked. The yellow car, the the eighty thousand mile yellow car looked better than the thirty eight thousand mile, excuse me, black car. And that's kind of like the point in case. That's a collector car, like I mentioned earlier. They're kind of their own thing. Being cleaner and better is generally going to lead to a little bit more value. Somebody's gonna if they're looking for a special car, they want it to be. Well, special. with those cars especially, yeah, mm-hmm. because you can lose out on twenty grand if the car is kind of beat to shit. Yeah, um, but that's that car is a very shining example of kind of what I view as the quote-unquote perfect owner scenario, yeah. where you had somebody that clearly used it. It's got over 80,000 miles on it. Like, it was definitely driven, but it was cared for religiously. So they did both ends of the spectrum, where it's like the person that... It's had PPF on it basically his whole life, right? Mm-hmm. It's had, it's like the person that buys a Rolex and actually wears it every day, and it, even, it gets wet, it gets you know used while they're washing dishes or doing yeah. some task around the house. Like It isn't taken off to be placed on a pedestal because it's perfect. It's right. like, oh, it can take it. I should be careful. So um, my dad bought this before they got you know crazy value. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there is an older saying that like a never pay sticker for a Rolex. Mm-hmm. Well, that used to mean that you would actually pay under sticker for a Rolex, and now that means you can't buy a Rolex new, and you're paying over on the gray market. Yep, that's a whole other thing. Uh, but my dad bought uh, a reference one six six ten Rolex, uh, Rolex uh, Submariner back in the late nineties, and I think sticker on it was twenty eight hundred. Yeah, and he bought it for like twenty four hundred, which is like not an inconsiderable amount for to spend on a watch but it's not five figures 
Yeah. You know, um, which is what they're going for new now. And uh, he bought it and basically wore it every day for over a decade. And uh, yeah, he would take it swimming and golfing. And actually, I was on the phone with a friend of mine the other day and I actually completely forgot about and then remembered this core memory I have Mm -hmm. of being with my dad in Moab um, at this hotel. Shout out to uh, the Apache Motel. Uh, in Moab where John Wayne used to stay. Hell yeah. Um, that's where we would take our vacations and uh, like drive the 964 down there. But my dad would take off his Submariner and throw it in the pool. Hell yeah. And be like, go dive for it. <laughs> it's literally a dive watch now. It, yeah, yeah. Like he would throw it into the six foot deep end and be like, okay, you have to go get it. And I'd swim down and get the watch and bring it back. And he basically playing fetch. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's a memory I, for, I forgot about for like, I don't know, 15, 17 years or so. And then I just remembered it like two days ago. I was like, oh, my God, I forgot about that. And and where I'm kind of boiling out to this is I think. Well, hold on. Oh, oh, I, sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought. All good. Um, So with that said, a normal service interval on something like a Rolex Submariner or a lot of other like really like rugged and simple watch movements mm-hmm. is about 10 years or so. Yeah. My dad bought that watch in 1999. Okay. Uh, a couple of months ago, it finally started to like uh, trip up a little bit on its own feet. And my dad sent it in for a $600 service, which yeah. is basically a service in the watch world is opening up the back taking the movement apart a little bit and oiling up some, you know, mainsprings and some gears and stuff and putting it back together. I mean, it's tedious because the parts are, you know, tiny, that, tiny, that big. Um, but then like, I mean, he had that, that watch had been unopened for like 23 years and, and used and used and like, you know, taken, you know, playing golf and like would take it to the job site where he would, he was building these homes and took it skiing and swimming and golf. Like yeah, I could just go in circles about this, but, um, that's the thing about like actually using something. You buy something and you use it on somewhat of a frequent basis. The things don't fall apart. Things don't dry up or crack up from lack of use. Yeah, and where I'm kind of going with this is I kind of I kind of think it's sad that a lot of our society has become so throwaway because so many things have become appliances like cars and right. are so common right. that people don't i guess you could call it for mental sanity people like to discount as much as they can so they can care about only a few things it's it's it makes sense it it helps you stay a little bit more sane and stress-free yeah, psych- in a way it's psychological compartmentalism yeah yeah we'll call it that yeah exactly but i what i wish is that and it's again one of those really difficult things to achieve is that people would be more passionate about stuff that's even not their passion passionate in a sense that like they want to care for it right, even though that's not like their hobby. It's not their biggest thing. Like, you know, care for the house well, even though the house is just a place to live. Care for the car well, even though it just drives the kids to school. Stuff like well, that. Well, do you nerd out about your fridge or your washing machine? I do, or... actually. Well, I-, I am the antithesis in You this are the scenario. exception to prove the rule because very much could so. not care less. I know. Does, Mo- it keep, does it keep my food cold and does it wash my dishes? Yes. Great. And and I am the nerd that likes to dig into those things. So I am so wait, going so to what's be... So what's the modern number of your dishwasher? No, oh, I don't know that much. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. how, like are, do you nerd out about that kind of stuff? Model numbers, no, but care, yes. Like, you know, in, in well, most people don't that's care. That's ownership. Yes, but most people don't care about the dishwasher until it has a problem. With me, I'm like, okay, cool. It says do this every three months. I'm doing that every three oh, months, cleaning yeah. out th- this this dirt trap and stuff like that that people don't usually give a shit about. Right. Things like that. 
it's difficult because it gives you more to remember, more to pay attention to, et cetera, et cetera. It's not an easy way of life. It's quite stressful and annoying. And it's a lot of what comes from my own stress in my world is trying to pay attention to all that. And like, for instance, in my truck, it might change my pressure washer oil every 50 hours. Like, Mm -hmm. Little stuff like that's all the stuff that gets lost in the weeds, but at the end of the day, that's the stuff that will maintain your life better, whether it's a wash, you know, whether it's a truck or a pressure washer or a watch. I could totally see you owning just a small little plane, like a little biplane or something. That would really be up your alley. I've already, I would love to. I would love to. Being the the one that I've flown, the Cessna that I flew. Yeah. I, I would love to. Yeah. Do I mean, Mr. James May here doing all the pre flight checks <laughs> and checking your oil. I'm a little more flippant than James May. I, I do have a little bit more of a fuck it, let's just go aspect to it. But I usually, the only reason that exists is because I've done all the stuff well before. Sure. You know, to know that it's sorted. Um, but no, that's what it comes down to. I deal with an industry that a lot of people neglect a lot of things and just don't understand what better care is. And so I try to fight that daily, whether it is fighting the misconceptions over like what a ceramic coating can do or over what's best care for a small spill in your car or things like that. It's honestly a lot of my job when I get a phone call is trying to make sure that expectations are well presented because I work in an industry that's just so flooded with either, again, like ceramic coating snake oil things where there's broad advertisements about how game changing it is, which it is, but it's not like, oh, my life is so amazingly different. Or um, a lot of times where things are quite often oversold as far as what can be done and what's damaged versus what's just dirty and stuff like that. I've been able to save a lot of shit that I think a lot of people wouldn't think was savable. And there's equally as many things that people are like, oh, well, can't you just polish this out? I heard you can polish a scratch. And I have to say, no, that scratch is there until you repaint it. Right. And that is through the clear coat. Yes. And the paint. And the paint. Um, Ooh. It, it's, I constantly have to fight those misconceptions just because it's an area where people don't think about very often. Right. The average person doesn't think about, oh, when was the last time I decontaminated my car with a clay bar? And then you don't even always have to do that. But like that, that even that level, which is fairly simple in my line of work, is already well beyond the average person. If I approached you about doing a clay bar on a Fiesta, what would be like the out the door time involved and cost? So Because now that she's mentioned that, I'm like, Mm, I I haven't done that with with my car mm-hmm. in two years. So step one is a clay bar is a tool, not a necessity. Step one is wa- right. wash it. And how you tell if a vehicle needs to be clayed is if there's still like a slight rough texture that remains even after it's washed. If it's smooth, you don't need to clay bar it. I don't think I need it. I don't think my, you do. Yeah. So clay barring and the need to do so generally occurs when there's significant amount of dirt or time left on the car because that starts to like just embed itself into the paint. And it doesn't come off with just normal friction. So a clay bar, think of like a 8,000, 9,000 grit sandpaper. All it's doing is an extremely fine finishing. And you have to do it with lubrication and very carefully. So it's not something you want to do if it's not needed. You really don't need to do it. Generally, you will do it in prep for a polish. But even then, it's not always needed. Because all you're trying to do is avoid like stuff getting pulled into a pad while you're polishing. And then that'll go back in your paint. Yep. Yeah. Um, you don't want that. But... Quite often, that's not even needed. It's one of those tools. It's one of the first things that, like, a general person that's trying to get a little more into, like, car care will find is a lot of people will talk about clay barring. So they'll go buy a clay bar and then do it. And I'll hear people be like, oh, yeah, I clay it, like, every month. I'm like, stop doing that. Like, it's not that you're going to absolutely kill something, but, like, it's completely unnecessary and can do more harm than good. 
it, it, yeah, it can start eliminating your clear coat. If you're doing it monthly for yeah, a year. Yeah, and scratch it and things like that. Yeah. It, you know, it's, you're opening up the door for a lot of possible things to go poorly. It's a time and place thing. It's yeah. okay. Is your, If your paint has a lot of embedded contaminants in it, then do it. If you either live in a really dirty place or if you drive your car to work on like a dirt road. Yeah. And the car gets filthy, and sure, you might, you know, wash it a bunch, but, you know, you're not going to get maybe everything out. Mm-hmm. Then maybe like a biannual. Yeah. Uh, especially, for instance, um, and again, I don't know the chemical properties behind this, uh, white cars are notorious for what's called rail dust, which yeah. is tiny little embedded contaminants. And the rod, one of the reasons they're notorious is because you can see it, because, again, it's a white canvas right so you're it's very clearly and it looks like little rust particles and a lot of people will think it's rusting Mm -hmm. Eh, your car's not rusting it's just that little tiny speck of iron caught onto your paint stuck there yeah and now that little tiny speck of iron on top of the paint is what's rusting not the car itself right the the little piece of iron is oxidizing Mm -hmm. and that's what you see as rust and i have a friend that for instance the friend that has the mark 5 r32 that we used in our video that i shat on that car (laughs) or the, the internet things i shat on yeah that car um I did a very deep restoration on that car, filling a ton of rock chips, full decontamination, polish, and a ceramic coating on before it. Before our shoot. Before our shoot. Yeah. And he works in a pretty harsh environment in the concrete industry. So his car, even to his best efforts, washing it weekly, still gets shat on with nasty chemicals and stuff like that. Right. Um, and that car has actually proved that the coating that I use works quite well because it has not recollected a lot of the stuff I took off, which is awesome. Um but what I was getting at is you asked about time involved when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be doing a clay bar, you're just going to do a normal wash first. Yeah. And then you can either use a clay lube, uh, which is quite often- KY? Just, I mean, <laughs> you could. <laughs> I'm not going to say you couldn't because you could. It's a lubrication. <laughs> um, but you would generally use a lubricant of some kind, whether that's soap or whether it's a clay-specific lube. It's like a spray yeah. to kind of give some friction uh, relief. Similar, pro- similar ideas as wet sanding. Yes, yeah. so that you can get some friction relief and go through and take those contaminants out with the clay bar itself while safely, hopefully not hurting the paint. Yeah. Like me at this point, I can do that in about two, two and a half hours. Okay. The average person, I'd probably recommend not try to do it any faster than four take your time because the more time you take and the more careful you are the less like you are to screw up i do it every single day so like it's literally part of a daily routine that i know what i need to do to not hurt the car i've done it enough times that it's it's like riding a bicycle at this point sure uh just like a lot of things are when you know you go to work and you do your daily tasks yeah but the average person i would say make it an event if you are in a situation where you need to clay bar your car which happens all the time then you know it's not an uncommon thing it's just sometimes overused then Make it like a four-hour relaxation period. Put your headphones on, wash the car, go over it, do one panel at a time, make it nice and pretty, make sure the clay bar stays clean. And fortunately, there's a lot of great videos telling you how to do it out there. That's good. But I would definitely just... It's just interesting basically rounding this out. What I have to fight in my industry because there's so many things I have to fight from misconceptions to misinformation. Sure. But... It's fun. It's just basically turned into a sales pitch at this point where I've always been a little bit more of a no BS person. I'm pretty straightforward with what I say. Yeah. And that's why I like you. That's well, thank you. That's <laughs> that's been very good in my business because it's yeah. actually probably gained me more sales than lost. There's definitely the people that they like to feel sold. They like to feel like they're getting the best, you know, all well, these people things. like to feel taken care of yeah. and pampered and stuff. I get it. Yeah, I get it. Um, 
And a lot of times I have to fight that because that's not the type of person I am. I'm not the type of person that's just going to go, oh, yeah, like everything will be perfect afterwards. I, I don't paint fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And but a lot of people are very used to having fairy tales painted for them by companies. Sure. So, but oh, I mean that's that's really the end of that. Fuck! Is there any? How long have you been going for? Well, hour and three. So. Oh shit! All right. Cool. Well, uh, this has definitely been a more interesting episode of the Exhibition on Speed podcast. We made a uh, five-cylinder D two two-door lifted rear-wheel drive vehicle, dog box, <laughs> Baja vehicle. Uh, and Justin got to talk to us about detailing, which he hasn't really done in this iteration of the podcast. I think last time I did it was... 2019? 2020? I think it might have been 2020 was the last time. Probably. But that, I mean, so it's been a couple years, just about. Sure. Well, thanks for uh, show and tell, Justin. You're welcome. <laughs> Do you have anything else to show the class, Jimmy? Uh, exactly. Um, well, if you're hearing this and haven't done so already, uh, we got merch. We have, I'm just, you know, I'm going to be the corporate chill because like, you know, um, we don't get that many views on our videos and, uh, words is tough. We ain't rich. We, we ain't, we, we ain't rich, but you know, this is something that we really like. We enjoy doing the podcast. We enjoy doing videos. Um, despite that fact that I want to pull all my hair out every time we're in the edit room weekly yeah (laughs) for varying reasons um reasons that you know we try to work around and try to evolve and grow and for reasons that hopefully you won't see on the other end of this coin or the other side of this coin so uh yeah we have shirts we have hats Uh, what's our inventory like actually our inventory is still pretty good. We've sold probably about a good 25% of what we got. So like good 25 to 30%. We haven't really had really any sales uh, recently. So we Not still, recently. So we still have some pretty good inventory, and I uh, keep saying this. I want to and need to uh, start designing something for a shirt, or sorry, for a hoodie, uh, because we have uh, Steal Your Boyfriend's hoodie season coming up. And we need to, I think both me and you also need to throw a shill out on our personal Facebooks again, because that always provides results. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the people that are friends with us, they, you know, tend to give a shit. So, uh, yeah, com. I just drove a C8 Corvette recently and actually just started uh, cutting the video. I So kind of how we're doing this is I have my own, like, little videos that I'm going to be doing, like, by myself. Maybe Justin will make an appearance. Yeah, yeah. Probably. Um, but I take care of, like, those smaller time edits at home with, uh, with accompanying articles, and we do the big boy stuff with Justin's big boy computer uh, that's also up here uh, with all the other, you know, show-related activities. So uh, if you would like to show support for us, I mean, even if it's a $5 sticker, you know, that, you know, means a lot still, that our voices are reaching other people. So uh, feel free to go head on over and do that. Um, if you like pretty pictures of cars, uh, go to gp.media on Instagram. Um, I have, actually later today, I'm shooting a Pro Charge Corvette. So that'll oh, yeah. be really interesting. Um, and if you like... Detailing, I guess? If you, I don't know. I, I don't post much. If, if you, you really want don't. to look up stuff about detailing go to chaostheoryutah.com that's my business website sure like all my contact info's there if you you know are wanting to get a hold of me for if any you, services if, or whatnot if you have a dirty car and need it cleaned i'm hey, your man how about this 
call Justin to clean your dirty car and then have DM me on Instagram and uh, we'll shoot it. Yeah, there you go. See? Cool. Boom. Best of both worlds. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Exhibition of Speed podcast. Uh, and until next time, I've been Gavin. I've been Justin. And this has been the Exhibition of Speed podcast. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>